Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we present the first part of an article by Brent Waters, D. Phil, entitled, The Future of the Human Species. This article recently appeared in the Fall 2009 issue of Ethics in Medicine, an international journal of bioethics, and is used by permission. The content of the article is based on a plenary address given during CBHD's 2007 Summer Conference, Bioethics Nexus, the Future of Healthcare, Science, and Humanity. Dr. Waters is a confirmed plenary speaker for our 2010 Summer Conference, Beyond Therapy, Exploring Enhancement in Human Futures. For more information regarding the 2010 Summer Conference, please visit our website at CBHD. The Future of the Human Species, Part 1, by Brent Waters, D. Phil. If a number of pundits are correct, we have already taken some initial steps towards creating a post-human future. The goal of this project is nothing less than the perfection of the human species. Specifically, human performance will be enhanced and longevity extended through anticipated advances in pharmacology, biotechnology, and bionics. Drugs, for example, can lessen the need for sleep. Genetic engineering will slow the aging process. Artificial limbs will enhance strength and agility, and brain implants will enhance the speed of interacting with computers. The cyborg becomes the next stage of human evolution. Some visionaries foresee a day when, with the aid of artificial intelligence and robotics, endless lives might be achieved. The underlying binary information constituting one's personality would be uploaded into a computer and then downloaded into robotic bodies or virtual reality programs. With sufficient and reliable memory storage, the process could, in principle, be repeated indefinitely thereby achieving virtual immortality. In the post-human future, humans become self-perfected artifacts by blurring, if not eliminating, the lines separating the natural from the artificial. The promise of the post-human project is the creation of beings that live healthy, productive, and happy lives, and most importantly, beings that live for very long time, perhaps forever. The ultimate promise is immortality. The accompanying peril, however, is the cost is exorbitant. The price of perfecting humankind is its destruction, for in becoming post-human humans, cease being human. The peril of the post-human project, in short, is that its optimism disguises an underlying death wish for the human species. One might be tempted to object that any worry about this peril is misplaced. The peril presupposes a promise that is far from certain. Few, if any, of the requisite technological advances have yet been achieved, and the likelihood of dramatic breakthroughs anytime soon is slim at best. A so-called post-human future is based on science fiction, not science. Consequently, time should not be wasted worrying about a peril that might, but probably will never, present itself. There are two reasons why this temptation should be resisted. First, even in the absence of the technical advances and breakthroughs that would be required, 
we nonetheless must come to terms with the extent to which technology is shaping the character and trajectories of contemporary life. As Martin Heidegger and others have observed, technology has become the ontology of our age. Our mode of being in the world by mastering and reshaping it in an image of what we want the world to become. In large part, humans now live and move and have their being within fabricated environments that have become their natural habitats. It is through technology that they increasingly express who they are and what they aspire to become. This is not a mere acknowledgement of the ubiquitous presence of machines and gadgets within the fabric of daily life, but that in increasingly turning to medicine to control their behavior, regulate their biological processes, and repair and sculpt their bodies, humans are literally coming to embody a technological age. Focusing on the prospect of a post-human future, which is admittedly far from certain, helps us to come to terms with the fact that, to invoke George Grant's phrase, quote, in each lived moment of our waking and sleeping, we are technological civilization, end quote. To ponder the prospect of becoming post-human requires that we also ask the question of what it means to be human, and any answer we offer cannot avoid the question of technology. Second, even if most, if not all, of the more immodest expectations such as immortality never come true, post-human discourse is nevertheless shaping a vision of the future, and thereby derivatively our moral imagination. Like it or not, how we envision the future informs our moral convictions and conduct in the present, and it does not matter how improbable, strange, or fantastic such a vision might appear to be in exerting such influence. Whether, for example, I believe that I will either live a long and sickly life or short, robust one goes a long way in shaping how I spend my time and money in the meantime. Whether or not either scenario is likely is largely irrelevant, for I become a certain kind of person in reaction to what I believe the future entails. If I believe that my life will be short and sweet, I become a free-spending bohemian. In a similar vein, if we believe either implicitly or explicitly that we can and should exert greater mastery over human nature and nature, that belief goes a long way in shaping what we do and how we treat each other in the present. In this respect, N. Catherine Hales is correct in asserting that, quote, people become post-human because they think they are post-human, end quote. Such post-human thinking should at the very least prompt some deliberation on its good or ill effects in forming our moral imagination, particularly in light of growing technological power and potential for further development. If I have persuaded the reader that the peril of the post-human project is, after all, worthy of some scrutiny, how might we best proceed? A promising avenue is suggested by the early work of the President's Council on Bioethics, in which its members discussed Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, The Birthmark. Although the exercise was derided by many reporters and bioethicists as a waste of time, it reflected the insight of its chairman, Leon Cass, that fiction is often quite perceptive in revealing fundamental convictions, hopes, and aspirations, offering a fruitful starting point for moral deliberation and discernment. 
The Birthmark is a tale about a brilliant scientist who marries a stunningly beautiful woman. Her appearance is perfect in every regard except for a tiny birthmark on her cheek. The scientist becomes obsessed with this tiny, barely imperceptible flaw, and he concocts various potions to remove it. Over time, his efforts succeed. The birthmark disappears, but only at the moment that his wife dies. In Hawthorne's words, quote, As the last crimson tint of the birthmark, that sole token of human imperfection, faded from her cheek, the parting breath of the now perfect woman passed into the atmosphere. End quote. Hawthorne offers a sobering warning. The quest for perfection leads to a deadly destination. The cost of removing the flaw is a corpse. The applicability of this story to the posthuman project is obvious. Humans must first be killed in order to perfect them. The extinction of the human species is certainly one possible consequence that should be, give pause in assessing the prospect of a posthuman future, but I do not think it is the most likely outcome. Rather, Technological reconstruction may eventually produce a new species that is deemed to be superior, but to what extent these new beings can be said to be perfect is question-begging. By what standard of perfection is this judgment made? And what are the costs of attaining this perfect state? In other words, the underlying and unacknowledged death wish driving the post-human project is not an overt desire to exterminate humankind, but an ill-advised attempt to strip away the vulnerability and imperfections that enable humans to be human and humane. It is not the death of humankind, but its humanity that is at stake. We can begin to unfold this more subtle endeavor by taking a look at another short story by Hawthorne. In Rappuccini's Daughter, we encounter the highly acclaimed physician, Dr. Rappuccini. His lovely daughter, Beatrice, and a young medical student, Giovanni, who is living in the guest room. One of the chief features of the villa is a large garden that is filled with exotic plants, each one of them highly poisonous. The slightest contact is lethal, and even a quick sniff of the aroma causes illness. To stroll through this garden, one must keep his distance. Yet Beatrice is seen embracing the plants and breathing deeply of their fragrance, as the story unfolds, we learn that since her birth, her father has been slowly giving her increased dosages of the poisons he has been extracting from the garden. The effect has been to make her immune and invulnerable to any disease. Giovanni and Beatrice fall in love. Yet through their courtship, they never embrace, kiss, or hold hands, for, as with the plants from the garden, Beatrice is lethal to the touch. We also learn that Dr. Rappuccini has been administering the same procedure to Giovanni without his knowledge. The father wants to create an intimate companion for his lonely daughter. When Giovanni learns that he too is being made invulnerable by becoming poisonous, he is appalled. Arrival of Dr. Rappuccini on the medical faculty gives Giovanni an antidote that purportedly will make both he and Beatrice normal again. The couple makes a pact, but Beatrice insists that she take the antidote first, and she dies. This sad tale offers three lessons that may guide an assessment of the post-human project. First, the cost of invulnerability is high. 
Dr. Rappaccini has purportedly achieved his goal of preventing his daughter, Beatrice, from contracting any deadly disease. She will be spared needless pain and suffering and given a power and invincibility that few enjoy in confronting a cruel world. But it will also be an isolated life devoid of any physical contact. She can neither touch nor be touched by others, for she is literally poisonous to anyone other than herself. Her life will also be devoid of any intimate and lasting relationships. A crushing fate, as her father recognizes, in his desperate attempt to transform Giovanni into a suitable and equally poisonous companion. Beatrice's invulnerability has made her something less than human. May we not say, then, that in attempting to transform humankind into a superior species, we won't run the risk of the death of our humanity. Second, there is no going back. When Beatrice finally finds someone with whom she can purportedly share her life with fully, Giovanni is appalled by what he is becoming. Out of her love, she agrees to forsake her invulnerability and return with her lover to a natural state where together they may risk a vulnerable embrace. The attempt, however, proves futile and deadly, for her transformation had been complete and irreversible. In Hawthorne's haunting words, quote, To Beatrice, so powerfully had her earthly part been wrought upon by Rappuccini's skill, as poison had been life, so the powerful antidote was death. End quote. May we not say then that once we travel very far down the posthuman path, it may prove difficult, if not impossible, to turn back. Third, even if the promise is achieved, the consequences are ambiguous and uncertain. Because of Beatrice's death, we never know how the life of a poisonous couple might unfold. Would they be able to fully embrace, or would their respective lives prove too toxic to interlock in any meaningful sense? Moreover, is there a significant difference between the embrace of two invulnerable beings as opposed to vulnerable creatures? Would they be able to have offspring? If so, would their children share with them a life of poison, or would they be unable to touch what they have begotten until Rappuccini's skill worked its transformation once again? May we not say, then, that even if the post-human promise of a superior species is achieved, we do not know what will become of the human spirit and soul, and thereby whether or not these new beings will prove truly to be superior. Hawthorne's stories, written in the early 19th century, help to expose the post-human project for what it really is, namely a religious movement, and not a new or original one at that. The central post-human precept may be summarized as follows. Finitude and mortality represent the dire plight of the human condition. It is irrational and unfair that humans suffer, grow old, and die. In response, post-humanists offer the salvation of human transformation and perfection, culminating in virtual immortality. Hawthorne reminds us that this is an old complaint. Few, if any, of our ancestors warmly embraced their mortal limits. There is also nothing novel about the proffered solution. Hawthorne's plants and potions are simply exchanged for genetic engineering, miniaturization, silicon chips, and binary code. Consequently, it should not be surprising if Christians hear some familiar notes in this post-human tune, for they have encountered similar things before 
in what they identified as false religious beliefs. In more formal terms, post-human discourse is based largely on philosophical or theological precepts about nature, human nature, and human destiny that are derived from what may be described as heretical doctrines. There are three prominent strands that we may focus upon for the purpose of this essay. We may conveniently call the first strand nihilism. Nihilism is a modern philosophical orientation which posits that the world is devoid of any purpose or meaning. Consequently, there are no objective moral standards, only a subjective will to power. We assert this will over inanimate objects such as stones and cars, and animate things such as plants or animals, or other people such as children and students. As late moderns, technology is the principal means that is used to assert this power. We transform minerals into steel to build cars. We use genetic engineering to produce better plants and animals. And we use drugs and psychological techniques to control the behavior of children and students. The world, our lives, and the lives of others are artifacts that we construct, and the future is largely what we make of it and will it to be. Friedrich Nietzsche has become closely associated with this philosophical orientation. It should be noted, however, that although he accurately describes the nihilism of late modernity in all its lurid details, he does not commend it. Indeed, he is alarmed by its destructive potential. Nihilists can too easily conclude that in a world where there is nothing noble to will, it is better to will nothing at all, a despair leading to unspeakable violence. This is why he places his hope in the Ubermensch or Overman, a superior being that will rise above the fray and provide some meaning and purpose in a meaningless and purposeless world. Perhaps Nietzsche's hope can become real in the transformation of the human into the post-human, why not direct the otherwise directionless will to power toward the constructive goal of creating and perfecting a superior species? That was The Future of the Human Species, Part 1, by Brent Waters D. Phil. Dr. Waters is the Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center for Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, Evanston, Illinois, USA. This article is adapted from a plenary address given at the conference Bioethics Nexus, the Future of Healthcare, Science, and Humanity, held at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, July 2007. The article originally appeared in Ethics and Medicine, International Journal of Bioethics, Issue 25, Volume 3, Fall 2009, and is used by permission. A print version of this essay with references is available on our website, at www.cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.